You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Good. Yeah, Jonah is a, it's fascinating. If you have trouble finding it in your Bibles, it's hidden in the Minor Prophets. <laughs> Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, right there in the middle. Jonah is unique among the prophets uh, because it's almost, almost entirely narrative. You know, if you're reading through Hosea or Joel or Amos or any of those other guys, it's mainly just prophetic sermons. Jonah stands out because it's mainly just a story. Now, you have his psalm or his uh, prayer kind of in the middle of that, but it's mainly just a story. And what's it a story of? Well, just imagine that you're an Israelite living around the 8th century B.C., and your arch enemy are, are horrendous people. I mean, they, they make kind of our, our ISIS or whoever you want to say today kind of, you know, look like they're pretty mild-mannered because the Assyrians were known for... The Assyrians were skilled in cruelty. That was what made them stand apart, even from other peoples like the Babylonians and the Persians. So the Assyrians were known for not only doing horrific things to people, like impaling them and other things like that, but for making sure that everybody remembered it by actually doing artwork just imagine if you were walking into the White House and the artwork depicted all the major wars in which the U.S. were victorious. So, I mean, you walk in, oh, there's a, here we have a, the, a painting of the, the bombing of Hiroshima. That's kind of what the Assyrians did in their, in their palaces. They would have uh, etched into the stone all of these gruesome images from, from war in which they are conquering peoples. And the idea was to make sure that if you were invited for an audience with the king, as you're walking along, you're looking up, and you're reminded of exactly where you're at and the people that you're dealing with. So the Assyrians were known for this. They were the world power of the day. And as a result of that, anyone who was not an Assyrian, how would they view the Assyrians? They would despise them. And if you were an Israelite, you really despised them, because not only were they Gentiles, but they were also the greatest threat to your existence. So they were kind of the, uh, they, were the they were the Germany to the, from the Jewish perspective in World War II, kind of, kind, of like, kind of like that. So with that in mind, imagine now that you are an Israelite living in the 8th century B.C. and God says to you, I want you to go and preach to these people. Thanks, but no thanks. Precisely. Thanks, but no thanks. Uh, I hope they burn in hell forever. It's probably going to be your, be your response. And that was, uh, that was Jonah's eventual response. One of the beauties of the book, and unfortunately, we know the story. It's, it's kind of fun sometimes if you don't know the story, if you're reading it for the first time, because you're like, hmm, why, why did Jonah go down to a ship? to go the opposite direction. So you're, you're kind of left with the question, if you don't know the story, what's he up to? Why is he going the opposite direction of God told him, that God told him to go? And then later the story, it's revealed to you. But anyway, that's the kind of the scenario. Jonah, by the way, in Hebrew means dove, but he has much more of a hawkish personality, as we'll see. He would love to get his talons into the Assyrian flesh. The word of the Lord comes to him, opening chapter here. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, so that's where he was sent. 
Go to Nineveh, that great city. Cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. So Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, wherever Tarshish was. There's multiple viewpoints on that among scholarship. But it's not the direction of Nineveh. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Well, this is like the uh, Tarshish, some people think, was another name for Tarsus, where Paul came from. Some people think Tarshish was actually on the, the northern coast of Africa. Some people think it was all the way kind of in, in modern-day Spain. Wherever it was, it was not the direction of Nineveh. So this introduces the, it's kind of the well-known theme that we see in Jonah of him going down. So he goes to flee from the face of the Lord. We talked about that earlier. So the face of the Lord was there in the land of Israel the presence, but it's literally the face, and he goes the opposite direction. And this is the well-known theme. He went down to Joppa. In Hebrew, to go down is Yarad. It's the root meaning, root word of, of Jordan. Yardane is Jordan in Hebrew, because the Jordan River goes down from north to south. So he Yarads, he goes down. And Jonah is literally a downer here, because he's going to go down, down, down. He goes down to Joppa which is on the Mediterranean coast, seaport town. He finds a ship, which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare. And again, Yarod, he goes down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. What's Jonah doing? Well, first of all, not only is he going the opposite direction, he's fleeing from God's presence because he don't, doesn't want to do what God wants him to do. He's actually placing himself in a situation in which few Israelites would place themselves in. He's going into the sea. Now, if you're an Israelite, you are a lover of the land. You are not a sailor. You're not going to join the Israelite Navy because there was not one. The Israelites were people of the land because the land was understood to be the place where God wanted people to live. In the Israelite mind, there were three levels or three three stories to the universe. You had heaven, which was God, God's abode. And then you had the underworld, which was also the sea. So it's kind of understood that you have a, the upper level, the heavens, that's God's, God's place. You have the sea, which is the place of chaos. It's a place of death. It's a place of Sheol. And also the place of the Gentiles. That's why very often in the Old Testament, the nations are referred to symbolically as the seas or the oceans or the deeps. And then you have the dry land. That's the middle floor. And the dry land is where God wants humanity to dwell. And that's why the Israelites are people of the land. And they avoided the sea because the sea was a place where you don't want to be. The sea was a place where, you know, everything is kind of in a mess. That's why there's no sea in the new creation, according to Revelation, because everything is as it should be. But he goes to the sea, and as we will see, as he gets out onto the sea, God brings him into chaos and confusion. And he's surrounded by who? Gentiles. So Jonah has placed himself into a situation where he didn't want to go preach to Gentiles, but now he's surrounded himself by Gentiles. He didn't want to go and preach to these people who are chaos and confusion in the world, but here he is trapped in the midst of chaos and confusion. So they're on, the, they're on the sea. God hurls this great wind. Ship's about to break up. The sailors are afraid. Every man's crying to his God. They're throwing their cargo into the sea. And Jonah is where? He has once more, this is verse 5, Yarod, he's gone down into the hold of the ship. So one, two, three, he goes down. 
to the seacoast. He goes down into the, into the ship, and then he goes down into the hold of the ship. He's going down, down, down. And once more in the story of Jonah, that verb is used. It's later on when Jonah goes down into the depths of the sea. So God's bringing him down from his high and mighty throne, down, down, down to where he wants him to be. But get back to this, this particular part of Jonah's story. The captain finds him and says, why are you sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Story goes on. The men cast lots to figure out on whose account this calamity has struck them. Lot falls on Jonah. They basically say, they basically interrogate him and say, who are you? Where are you from? What do you do? Why is this happening to us? Now listen to Jonah. Jonah is a comical figure. Verse 9, he says to him, says to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And I always want to say, oh, you do, do you? (laughs) Then what in the world are you doing fleeing from him? Because in the Old Testament, to fear is not just to like be afraid of, it's to reverence and worship. It's to revere. So you're a worshiper. You're a Hebrew. You can just, you can just hear the arrogance in Jonah's voice. Well, <clears throat> I'm not a Gentile. I thank God that I'm not like other men. You know, <laughs> like you Gentiles. I am a Hebrew, and I fear the only true God. Well, here he is running away from the, the only true. So the, the irony is just it's thick here. Jonah is uh, very proud of Jonah. The men are, are extremely afraid, and anyway, they just to, to kind of skim over part of the story, they're trying to figure out what to do. Jonah says, pick me up and throw me into the sea, and the sea will become calm. And the men try not to. They row as hard as they can. It's not working. And so they, they call out, verse 14, they pray. Now, now notice the, the language that's used here. Verse 14, we earnestly pray, O Lord. Now, you probably know this. In your English translations, anytime that L-O-R-D is in all caps, what is the Hebrew behind that? Yahweh. Yahweh. Yeah, it's a helpful little translational device that's been used. Now, think about who's saying this. Before this, what was happening? They're praying to their own gods. And now they're praying not just to a generic god, but they're actually using his name. They cry out, O Yahweh, don't hold this man's life against us. So they pick up Jonah, they throw him into the sea. The sea stopped, it's raging. Now, verse 16, then the men feared Yahweh greatly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. One of the things you learn about Jonah is that everybody around him is basically falling over in repentance, despite every effort of Jonah not to make that happen. (laughs) Jonah is one of those guys that is the very embodiment of of our imperfection, our unwillingness to do what the Lord wants us to do. And despite that, God has his ways of still using people like Jonah to accomplish his will. So Jonah ends up being thrown into the sea while the Gentile sailors around him are converted. Jonah can't like... He can't help but, but uh, impact positively the people around him. This, this whole story is a comedy. I'm telling you, it, it, it's hilarious to see how God is using these situations to accomplish his will despite every effort of Jonah to make sure they don't happen. Which is, 
That's why I love the story. It's like, you know how many times I have, I have tried my best to just completely foul up God's plan? I don't because I lost count a long time ago. And yet somehow God still manages to accomplish His will despite my best efforts to, to mess that up. This is what's happening here with Jonah. So God appoints a fish, verse 17. And he swallows Jonah. Jonah's in the stomach of the fish three days and three days and three nights. That's another aspect of this. Notice how people all around Jonah and even animals and other elements of creation around Jonah are heeding the word of the Lord while Jonah does not. God says to the storm, hit the sea. And the storm hits the sea. God says to the fish, swallow Jonah. The fish swallows Jonah. God uses Jonah's preaching to reach the Ninevites. They repent. So all around Jonah, everything not Jonah is doing the will of the Lord except Jonah. The fish, of course, is referred to by, by Jesus as a prefigurement of what's going to happen to him. As Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the earth for three days, three days and three nights. Which is one of the most surprising parallels that Jesus draws from his own ministry to the Old Testament. Because if you know the story of Jonah, you're not going to think, oh, you know what? What happened to Jonah is probably a type of what's going to happen to the Messiah. Not a person you would expect to be a prefigurement of the Messiah, any more than you would expect the, the bronze serpent to be a prefigurement of the Messiah. But it is. And that also means that what's happening to Jonah is that Jonah is dying. Now, whether he died literally or not is up for debate. But what's happening to Jonah is that he is being cast into death, which is precisely what Jonah needs. That's the best thing that can happen to, to us, is for, is for God to repeatedly kill us. Uh, what was the, uh, what's the short story by Flannery O'Connor about the woman who would have been a go- good woman if... Uh, a good man is hard to find. And what's the, what's the one quote that, uh, that the guy says about the woman? She would have been a good woman if someone had been there to... <laughs> what was, what's it again? To hold a gun to her head every day of her life. She would have been a good woman if someone had been there to kill her every day of her life. <laughs> I'm sure she intended that as, as, a, as a theological statement. We... <laughs> We are great if someone is there to kill us every day of our lives. That's really, that is ultimately the, what God wants of us. Uh, in our tradition, in, in our small catechism, Martin Luther talks about what's, a, what's the significance of this baptizing with water. It indicates that by daily contrition, by daily repentance, that our old sinful nature should be drowned. And a new man should emerge daily to arise before God in righteousness and purity. So, in other words, daily repentance is a daily death and a daily resurrection. A daily joining Jonah in the belly of the fish in the depths of the sea and then arising. That's the way that God does His work on us. Death and resurrection. Killing and giving of life. Because the best thing that can happen to us is every day of our lives, a pistol is held to our head and, and we're killed in order that we might be raised again. That's how we are conformed to the Good Friday and Easter Christ. So what happens to Jonah is exactly what needs to happen to Jonah. He needs to be put to death. And that's what happens. He's in the belly of the fish, chapter 2. 
and he prays to God. Now, my friend Dan Price thinks this is one of the most terrible prayers in all Scripture. He's, if you've heard him talk about Jonah, he will say that. And it's a terrible prayer, uh, not necessarily because of the prayer itself, but because of the one who prays it. The prayer itself, if it were just a standalone prayer, would be okay. But when you know who Jonah is and, and what he's done and what he has after this, the prayer comes across as really kind of self-serving. In fact, in my Bible, I've taken a highlighter and I've highlighted all the first person singulars in there. The I's, the me's, the my's, and there's a bunch of them. I, 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 me, 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 my, my, my. So here's Jonah praying. And he calls out to God from the depths of Sheol, from the heart of the sea, the breakers and billows have passed over him. He descends to the roots of the mountains. That's verse six. That's that final Yarod, by the way, that final going down. He descends to the very, to the very bottom. And that's where God, that's where God wants him to be. And he does pray and ask God to ask God to redeem him, to rescue him. And that is exactly what God does. One of, the, one of the takeaways from this is that when we pray, we're always going to be praying as those who pray imperfectly. So our prayers will also be, even though they might be beautiful prayers from the scriptures, for instance, because we pray them, they're always going to be less than ideal, less than, less than perfect. But just like our good works need to be forgiven because they're tainted by our unrighteousness. So our prayers need to be forgiven because they're also prayed from sinful lips. And Christ has it all covered. He has this prayer of Jonah covered. He has our prayers covered as well. Verse 10, God commands the fish. It vomits up Jonah onto the dry land. So covered in, in a fish vomit, Jonah finally is ready to faithfully carry out his mission. So we'll see if he does that. Chapter 3 begins with him going to Nineveh, with God telling him to go to Nineveh. Same thing he said before. So Jonah this time arose and went to Nineveh according to God's word. And we hear how great a city Nineveh, Nineveh is. It's a you know, three days walk around it. And here we have, verse 4, Jonah's sermon. It's probably a favorite of a congregation because it's so short. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. I suspect that this is a summary statement of what Jonah actually preached, but that's all that's recorded for us. Now you would think, if you know the Assyrians, and you know what they're infamous for, and you know that they have their own gods, and you know about the Israelites and, and what they believe, that this sermon is going to be the worst sermon that's ever been preached, the most unsuccessful sermon that's ever been preached. There's absolutely no way that this proclamation is going to somehow break through the hard hearts of the idolatrous, cold and calculating Assyrians to bring them to repentance. That's what you would think. And yet, verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed in God they called a fast, they put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least. The king arose from his throne, took off his robe, covered himself in sackcloth and ashes, issues a decree that in Nineveh 
No man, beast, herd, or flock is going to taste a thing. They're going to even make the animals fast. In fact, verse 8 says that man and beast are to be covered with sackcloth. Even the animals are wearing sackcloth. That each may let men call on God, that each may turn from his wicked ways and from the violence which is in his hands. Verse 9, who knows? Maybe God will turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we may not perish. So Jonah's sermon was not convincing enough of God's mercy. They still were asking themselves, who knows? Maybe we have a chance. Verse 10, God saw their deeds. They turned from their wicked ways. And God relented concerning the calamity that he, would, that he had declared that he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. Now, let me, let me translate this a little bit more literally so we can capture the essence of how chapter 3 ends and chapter 4 begins. When God saw their deeds, that they had turned from their evil way, God relented concerning the evil that he had declared he would bring upon them. He didn't do it. But it eviled evilly to Jonah, and he became angry. Every single time, that's the same Hebrew word that's used there. That means that when God said no to the evil that he would bring upon the city of Nineveh, God not doing what he had said, not punishing the people of Nineveh, that was evil in the eyes of Jonah. You get it? God not punishing the people was declared by Jonah to be an evil act. Now, what does that mean? It means that Jonah declared the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God, to be, to be evil, to be wicked. It is an evil act for God to forgive the people of, of Nineveh. That's what, that's what he goes on. Yeah, in uh, the very next verse, he prayed to the Lord. Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? So now we're finally brought to realization of why he fled in the first place. So in order to forestall this, in order to put, it, put this off as long as I could, I went to Tarshish. I was heading to Tarshish. For I knew, and you can just, you can taste the sarcasm in these words. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. So therefore, kill me. Because it's better that I die than I see my enemies forgiven by you. Now you tell me, where do you see yourself in Jonah? Well, you don't have to say it out loud, but just ask yourself. It's kind of like Psalm 73, seeing your people. My enemies have, yeah, yeah, yeah. Being envious of the arrogant, of those who prospered. Yeah. Haven't, you, haven't we all been in a situation where We've got the people of Nineveh, whoever that might be, whoever those people might be, and 
If there's anything that we hope happens to them, it is certainly not that God would forgive them. I mean, if there's, if there's anybody in this world that deserves God's judgment, it's that guy or that gal. When that happens, we are in the exact position of, of Jonah. And, I, and there's the flip side of that, too, because I know there's a lot of people who look at me and say the same thing about me. Right. If anybody deserves some judgment, it's that guy. So people say can say that about me. I can say that about, about other people. And this gets to this again gets to the heart of what the scandal of the gospel is. It's what makes Jonah so mad. You are a God who's gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. And you relent concerning calamity. So the very thing that angers Jonah is the very expression of the heart of God. It's a, it's a reminder to us that the more that we dwell upon what the gospel message truly is, the more shocking it is. It's, it's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that the word of the cross is foolishness. And worse than that, it's, in, it's a seeming immorality. It's an, it's an injustice. These things should not happen. I mean, how many times have, have you seen people get upset because they're kind of like the, the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son? I mean, this guy. I mean, I've been working my butt off all these years for you. You haven't even given me a goat. And this kid brother of mine, total waste of life has gone off with all this money and he just squandered it on whores and liquor and who knows what else. And he comes home and you throw a party for him? But you can just, you can hear the anger in what he says. And you can, and here's the other, you can understand. I can't, I can't remember who this was. Some woman, I was speaking somewhere and some woman told me that, that her mom was completely honest with her. And she said, I can't stand the parable of the prodigal son because she saw so much of herself in that older sibling. She's like, this, this is not right. She was truly angry about the parable itself, which I, I, I love and appreciate because she saw right to the heart of what this was all about. Because we've all been, probably both of those, we've all been the product, we've all been the older brother, and there's, all, there's always people who are like, man, I hope you don't make it to heaven. <laughs> I don't want to see you there. <laughs> and those, those, are Jonah, those are Jonah moments. Those are, those are the moments when, when we, we realize the, the, the truth about ourselves and also the truth about, about others. That Listen, we're, we're all the people of Nineveh. We're all those who are spared by a good and gracious God. Jonah needed, Jonah needed mercy just as much as the people of Nineveh. And yet it's the one thing that because he kind of had this spiritual elitism, because he had this pharisaical self-righteousness, he wasn't yet brought to the point of seeing. Now, the way the story ends, you know, he, he kind of goes back and forth with God and God teach, tries to teach him a lesson about what's really important. And the story ends by saying, by God speaking and said, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, that great city with all these people who don't know the difference between right and wrong, the right hand and left hand, as well as many animals. 
And we're all, we're all left saying, what happened after that? We don't know what happened after that. And I think that's on purpose because if, we, if, we, if we're reading the story and we're seeing ourselves as part of the story, we're left asking ourselves, what do you write after that? What comes after that? What comes after that when I see myself as Nineveh, when I see myself as Jonah? How does that story, story end? Well, hopefully it ends with us coming to the realization that we're Jonah and we're Nineveh. We're the Israelite, we're the Assyrian. And even though we might want to kind of hold back that mercy and grace of God, it can't be held back. There's no dam that's going to hold back those, those gracious waters that are going to spill forth. In, and they're going to go into places that we might not want them to go. But the, the good news is, when that happens, we also realize that they're going into places within us that other people might not want them to go. But the Lord shows no favoritism. It's not like he sees this sinner as less worthy of his grace than this sinner. But this sinner is more in need of his grace than this sinner. He sees us all equal before his eyes in need of his, need of his mercy. And as a result of that, he is true to who Jonah describes him to be. Merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love and relenting concerning the calamity that he would, that he would bring upon us. So it doesn't matter if you're talking about Jonah or David or Jacob or Cain and Abel or any of the others that you could that you could look at. All these are examples of ordinary people with ordinary weaknesses, with terribly ordinary sins, which are never really creative. Evil is never creative. All of whom, in one way or another, God summons back to himself and is merciful toward and is forgiving toward just like he is toward toward all of us whether you're an outlaw or a, or a uh, deceiver or some other kind of saint <laughs> you are you're covered in the grace and the mercy of our lord jesus christ and for that we give thanks and it's eleven fifty nine. so uh, pause there and uh you, you yeah take a couple minutes and Yes, sir, in the back. Oh, yeah. That's it. I'm gonna, uh, in fact, I'm going to use that in the future. That, that's a perfect example of not having the best interest of your brother in mind. And then said quite, quite the opposite. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. That's another kind of Jonah-Jesus connection there, where he's, he's asleep in the stern of the boat while the ship is in the midst of a storm while on the sea. Absolutely. So there's a uh, there was a Lutheran chaplain in World War II who was uh, summoned to Nuremberg during the trials, and he was a uh, the chaplain to the Nazi war criminals. And as a result of his ministry over over a period of months, uh, a number of them were brought to repentance and faith and baptism in Christ, and he walked many of them to the uh, to the gallows, those who were sentenced to death. I mean, these were all well-known names. The story is not that well-known, uh, but documented in a couple of books. That particular Lutheran pastor uh, never disclosed this to his family, but when he died, his son was going through his stuff, and he found boxes full of hate mail. People had sent him just hate-filled letters because he had dared to bring the gospel 
to these war criminals, to these Assyrians. Yep. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.